0: Well, good morning. Man, it is so good to be with you guys again, to see you, whether you're here in the room or online. Thanks for joining us. You know, it's Memorial Day weekend, so you know what's awesome about the online worship service is we have people who are traveling all over the country who are, uh, you know, going somewhere for for Memorial Day weekend. So if you are traveling, you're watching this online, would you just type in the comments wherever you are, uh, what location you're in, that'd be kind of cool to see where Bethel Church, our church family, is uh, right now. Well, one of my greatest fears growing up was being alone. None of us want to be alone. No one truly wants to be alone. Even the most isolated, independent people on the planet, even the greatest loners on God's green earth, deep down, want companionship. They want belonging. They want the presence of someone. And so we think of these shows or, or movies that feature isolation. I think of Gilligan on his island. Even Gilligan had who? Skipper, you know, the movie star, the professor, the whole gang. I think about Tom Hanks in the movie Castaway. Tom Hanks had who? Wilson! You know, this volleyball with a handprint on it. With, he gave a whole persona. And then you have the Hunger Games. Katniss Everdeen had, I don't know, Woody Harrelson. <laughs> I don't know, I didn't really follow that movie. But the point is, no one is truly wanting to be alone. We weren't made to be alone. And yet, sadly, over the last 15 months, loneliness and depression and despair and mental health problems have skyrocketed during the pandemic to a level that we have never seen before in our entire lives. And maybe that's you whether you're online watching this on your phone by yourself, maybe that's you here in person, maybe you're with people, but you feel so depressed and lonely. Many people right now feel like they are completely and totally and utterly alone. But are they? Well, we're going to look at the text of Scripture today, but before we do, let me give you a caveat. Whenever you look at a passage of Scripture, you should ask several questions. And I'm going to to give you three questions you can look at You can ask yourself whenever you are looking at a new passage of Scripture. The first one is, what is the genre? And what genre is this passage? You know, the the Bible has all kinds of genres within it. You have poetry, you have wisdom, you have prophecy, you have discourse, law, all these different genres. And today's passage is narrative, specifically Old Testament narrative. In fact, narrative or story is the largest genre we have in the Bible, 43% of the Bible is narrative. God knows that we love stories, we delight in stories, we are in one grand story, and so stories speak to our hearts. Second question, what is the main idea of the passage? What is this passage getting at? Whenever you look at a scripture passage, you should ask, what is the author's intended meaning? What is the purpose? What is the main idea of this passage? And depending on the genre, you handle that a little bit differently. So we just came out of the book of Romans. Most of the book of Romans, the letter written to the Christians in Rome, is called didactic. Didactic means teaching, and so every passage, Paul is trying to make one specific point, and then he evidences that point with sub points, with supporting evidence. But that's not how a story goes. That's not how narrative works. Think of the difference between a lecture and a movie. You know, in a lecture, you have the professor who's up in front of the class, and he or she says, all right, here's the main idea. Here's what I'm trying to communicate to you in this lesson today, and here's all the supporting evidence to support that main idea. Not so with a movie. Like if you go to, you go to the movie at the movie theater, remember movie theaters? Oh, weren't those so fun? So you go to the movie theater, and you're sitting there, and your, your, your buddy comes up next to you and says, psst, hey. I mean, the coming attractions are rolling, and they'll say, hey. I saw this movie last night. So here's what happens. Here's what the movie's all about. You would be so mad and probably sock your friend, rightfully so, okay maybe not too hard, but what are you doing? Spoiler alert, we don't like spoilers, that's not how movies work. In a movie it's called inductive. Think of it like a funnel, it starts with scenes that work their way down to a main point. I think of the movie Citizen Kane. How many of you have seen the movie Citizen Kane? It was rated by the American Film Institute as the greatest movie in history. Personally, meh, we can debate that later. But regardless, you have in this movie, it begins with his childhood, and then it masterfully, brilliantly goes through his life story until you get to the end. These scenes are progressing to a main point. You get to the end and you realize, oh, it was always about his childhood. That's what rosebud means. If that's a spoiler alert, by the way, I'm sorry. You've had 80 years to watch this movie. That's on you. But that's how a story works. It is progressing in scenes down to a main point. What's the moral of the story? So what's the main idea of this passage? Third question is, where is Jesus in this? Where is the Jesus moment? In Luke chapter 24, Jesus is on his way to Emmaus. He had just died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead and and, and days later, he's walking on the road to Emmaus and he encounters two of his disciples. And they don't even recognize him. They're blinded to who he really is. And so they're like, Did you hear what happened in Jerusalem? Oh, tell me more about it. And they're telling Jesus about Jesus, they're telling the resurrected one about the resurrection. And Jesus is like, oh, interesting. And then he opens up the Old Testament. He opens up the scriptures, and it says he goes through every book, every passage of the Old Testament to show how it points to the Messiah, how it points to him. Imagine being a fly on the wall in that Bible study. Wouldn't that be awesome? Jesus explaining all the scriptures to you. In fact, Jesus departs, and the the disciples go, man, were our hearts not burning within us when he opened up the scriptures Jesus is saying that all of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, all of it is all about who? Him. We say it all the time at Bethel. It's all about Him. All of Scripture points to Him. And so where is Jesus in the passage you're looking at? So, we're looking at the Old Testament. So go to 1 Kings chapter 19. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 19 in your Bible, on your phone, or you can look at the screen. But let me set the context for where we're at today. In chapter 17 and 18 of 1 Kings, we see this. There is this man named Elijah. And this guy is a dude after God's heart. He was known as a man of God. He was a prophet. He was honorable. He was bold. He was faithful to the Lord. And and the miracles that God performed through Elijah were nothing short of legend, wait for it, Legendary. Legendary. I mean, he took oil and flour that this widow had and multiplied it just like someone else multiplied fish and loaves, which would be who? Church? Jesus. Right? And, and then later, the same widow, the, her son dies and he raises his son from death to life, kind of like someone else raises Lazarus from death to life. And that person is Church? Jesus. Oh, you could say it more enthusiastically. That person is. There we go. There we go. And then later in his life, Elijah takes off his, his outer mantle, his cloak, and he gets to the River Jordan, and he takes his, his coat, and he touches the water with it. And the waters split. They move from side to side so he can walk on dry land, just like someone else did when, he's, when he split the Red Sea. And that person is who, church? Okay, not Jesus. <laughs> that was a trick question. Moses. So Elijah points forward to Jesus and backward to Moses, very, very important. And as godly as a man that Elijah was, he had his adversary, his equal and opposite, a guy named King Ahab, and Ahab was a bad man. And I don't mean bad man as in like, but we're talking about shaft, we can dig it. I mean, he was a bad, bad man. The most wicked king that Israel had ever had up to that point, and his wife Jezebel, Queen Jezebel, was even more vile than he was. And together they led the hearts of the people astray from following the one true God, from worshiping the one true king. And they led the people in spiritual rebellion to worship other gods, false idols and false gods. And so the Lord, through the prophet Elijah, proclaimed judgment on Ahab and Jezebel And Israel in the form of a major drought, not a single drop of rain, no precipitation, no condensation, not even dew on the ground for over three and a half years until the people would return to the Lord. And a few years passed and the famine was extremely severe. And so King Ahab, rather than owning up to his sin, rather than confessing it, rather than repenting and turning back to God, he doubles down on his stubbornness and sends headhunters, he blame shifts after uh, Elijah and the prophets and he has them killed thinking that will end the drought. And sadly, over that time period, many of the servants of God are killed. And so, God has Elijah appear before Ahab. And Elijah tells Ahab, hey, I want you to get all 450 prophets of Baal and all 400 prophets of Asherah and I want you to bring them before the people, and we're gonna do a little showdown. Baal and Asherah were the false god and false goddess of fertility and sex, and Israel had left following, left worshiping the one true God to worship Baal and Asherah. We we don't know what it's like to live in a society and culture that worships sex, right? Enter sarcasm here. And so look in 1 Kings chapter 18. Here's what Elijah says. Here's what he does. So Ahab sent, verse 20, to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word And then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am, left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. So let two bowls be given to us. Let them choose one bowl for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord my God. And the one, the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, sounds good, let's do it. This is a head-to-head face-off between the people who, who would see who the real God is. You could call the clash on Carmel, the melee on the mount, the showdown for who would bow down. The prophets of Baal get up first, and they put up their sacrifice, and they call on the name of Baal to answer with fire. And so they start chanting and shouting and dancing vehemently, and they do this for hours and nothing. Nothing happens. And so they do it with more intensity, louder and louder and louder. And it gets to the point where Elijah, after several hours, meanwhile, he starts talking some trash. I mean, really talking some trash. Listen, when you talk trash, you better know that you're victorious. You better know that you're going to win. And Elijah hasn't even gone yet. Oh, the bold faith of this guy. So he just starts talking some trash. He's saying, you know, uh, maybe Baal is sleeping. Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's deep in thought. Maybe he's on a journey. (gasps) Maybe he's on the toilet. Literally, he says, "Maybe he's relieving himself," And the prophets of all are like, "Hey, yeah, maybe." And so they dance harder and they get louder, with more intensity, they start and this is graphic, they start cutting themselves till blood is gushing out, it says. But the verse says, "There was no voice. No one answered, no one paid attention because they did not worship the God who answers. They did not worship the God who is there, the God who is near to us. So, Elijah's turn. Elijah gets up. And he, he beckons the people to co- draw near to him. He, he brings the people in close to him. And he sets up the altar of the Lord in the name of the Lord using 12 large stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. This was highly symbolic to represent the restoration of God's people. So he builds the altar. He puts the bowl sacrifice on top of it. And then he digs a trench around the altar. Elijah, what are you doing? He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take four large pitchers of water and dump it. On the bowl, dump it on the altar. Wh- what? Elijah, you know that fire and water don't mix. Yeah, just, just do it, just do it. And so they do. He says, Yeah, still too easy. Do it again. Okay, so they do. He said, You know what? I might still get the glory. You might still think, well, it's a parlor trick. He's got a match up his sleeve. He's like David Copperfield or David Blaine. Just, oh, fire. You know, I might get the glory. And so, run it back. Do it again. Four more pitchers of water. And they dump all this water. And there's so much water pouring down from the altar and from the sacrifice. It fills up the trench. It's overflowing. And then Elijah prays. And oh, what a prayer. And after he gets done praying, Fire from heaven falls like a fiery furnace, like a pillar from the sky. And it, it just in, completely incinerates the sacrifice and the stones and looks up all the dust and evaporates all the water and the people are blown away. In fact, I believe literally blown away. They are taken aback and probably dropped to their knees and they praise God after seeing the power of God and they start shouting, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God, Humor me. Let's try this. Ready? The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And they start saying that over and over. The hearts of the people are experiencing revival. They're turning back to God. He had stacked the odds against him. Why? So that God would get all the glory. And now the people turn back to him. And then rain pours on the earth. And that's where we get to chapter 19. Chapter 19. In verse 1, Ahab, after seeing all this, he goes back to Queen Elijah and he blabs to her. He tattletales to his wife Jezebel who gets furious that they had killed the false prophets of Baal and Asherah. She's furious and she says, oh, okay, I'm going to take Elijah's life by this time tomorrow. She threatens his life. Now surely Elijah stands his ground. Surely he prays after what he just saw. Surely he calls on the name of the Lord in all his might and in all his power just as he did previously, right? Well, look at verse three. But then he was, what? Afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. Elijah flees. The fear of man overtook the fear of God. And I kind of get it, though. I mean, think about the history of the people of Israel. Things would be going well. They're worshiping God. They get comfortable. And they start to drift. They start to veer from following God. They start rejecting God and following false gods, false idols. And after some time, God sends judgment upon them, usually in in the form of conquering nations, conquering peoples, and so after going through much duress and destruction and suffering, then they would fall on these. Then when they've hit rock bottom, they would, would, would repent and cry out to God. And God would hear their prayers and listen and send forth a deliverer who would save them. And they'd be saved and then they'd worship God for a while until they got comfortable and then the cycle would go again, rinse and repeat. So Elijah's probably thinking, Well, here we go again. Same old, same old. We just saw God do something spectacular for his glory. And the people were crying out, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. But easy come, easy go. I mean, I get threatened for standing up for the Lord. And where are the people to defend me? Elijah is giving up. You know, some of us on occasion suffer under what I call temporary spiritual amnesia temporary spiritual amnesia. We forget about God's awesome power, that he is able to accomplish anything he desires for his glory. Amen? And Elijah just saw the power of God, but he forgot about the presence of God. I mean, I have watched the Lord completely transform hearts right before my eyes. I mean, you'll see someone who trust in Jesus by faith, they repent, they look to him for salvation, and it's a complete 180. They cry, they they, they call on the name of the Lord for salvation, they get on their knees, and they are a new man, a new woman, a new person, and I'll see this. And not long after that, I will have an opportunity to share my faith with someone, to share the gospel with someone who doesn't yet know Christ. And I don't, out of fear, why? Did God change, church? Not a hypothetical. Did God change? No. Is God still with me? Yes. So what happened? Temporary spiritual amnesia. Perhaps this is what happens with Elijah. At the very least, he took his eyes off of the Lord and placed them on himself. In verse 4, he sits under a broom tree and desires to die. He actually prays to the Lord that the Lord would take his life. Have you ever been in so much distress, so much pain, so much hurt that you almost wish that the Lord would just take your life, that you didn't live anymore? I don't know if you've ever seen this meme. If we could put this up on the screen. Look at this. Here we go. Not that one. There it is. All right. Have you guys seen this before? This has been out for, you know, several years. How many of you have seen this? I love this meme, you have this dog, the house is burning down all around him. He's like, this is fine, everything is fine. I don't know about you, but 2021 has been a difficult year, at least for the Bryant household. 2021 has been way harder than 2020, and so there have been moments where my wife and I are looking at one another, and one of us will say, (laughs) this is fine, everything is fine, as we're, you know, trying to paint a smile on our face, having that maniacal laugh, like, (laughs) everything's fine, (laughs) you know, we're good in total denial. This is fine, but Elijah is not in denial about his predicament. He is in despair because he believed that his people, his nation were spiritually rotten, were rebellious and past the point of no return. They were not repentant and seeking the Lord. Sometimes that temporary spiritual amnesia is so bad that we forget that we have life in Christ. We revert back to when we were living in darkness, condemned to die in our sin. Our joy is sapped and we are dried up and we are withered. We lose the will. We lose the desire to live for the Lord. And other believers have struggled with this. Listen, this is not a new thing. This is a normal thing. We think about Psalm 42. Now, I'm not going to read it now, but let me, let me paraphrase it. The psalmist is basically saying, I desire God and his presence more than anything, and yet sorrow has overwhelmed me. I wonder, Where is God? Does he even really exist? Where is he in this moment? If so, why hasn't he come to help and comfort me? I remember when I used to walk closely with God, and a joy used to fill me that was indescribable as I would thank him for all his blessings, but now, now I'm in despair. My soul is disturbed, and yet I will hope in God. I will praise his holy name. I will seek his presence. I will remember him in the storms of life. His loving kindness never ceases, and he is with me even in the darkness of life. God is my rock, and though I am oppressed and depressed, though I am persecuted and mocked, I will still hope in God and praise him because he is my help, the lifter of my soul. See, Even in the midst of a dark season, even in the midst of the storms of life, the psalmist is saying, even though the tears, my tears are my own food crying out to me, where is your God? I will not give up hope in him. There is still hope in him yet. And it is not abnormal to reach a point of sorrow and loneliness and despair that you despair even of your own life. And maybe you're there now I 'm speaking to you listen as individuals maybe you are there now tell someone tell someone about the predicament about your heart about, about what you are feeling you've got to tell someone but know this there is always hope there's always hope and Elijah had forgotten that In verses five through eight he is so emotionally and spiritually exhausted that he's physically exhausted as well. I don't know if you've been there, but you're just, you know when you've been crying so much and you're so weary that you're just tired. God doesn't ridicule him or downplay his despair. He actually provides a meal for him. Twice. By the hand of an angel. So Elijah wakes up and there, right by where he's sleeping, is a hot, prepared meal. And sometimes when you are going through a difficult time and you are overwhelmed with sorrow, you just need to rest and eat. He needed rest and food because he was about to embark on a difficult 40-day journey. And here is where it is important to know the whole counsel of God. See, we can't just pick apart, the, the cherry pick the parts of Scripture that we like. We can't just read just the New Testament and skip the Old Testament or just certain books, certain parts. We need to know the whole thing, the Old Testament and the New Testament, because You have to familiarize yourself with it. It is constantly referencing. The the New Testament points back to the Old Testament very often. And the Old Testament references and parallels other parts of the Old Testament and points forward to the New Testament. And so Moses and Elijah, you see their stories, and they are inextricably linked. So many parallels. Both went 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb, Also known as Mount Sinai, to encounter God. Mount Horeb was a significant location to the Israelites. It was a place of covenant renewal for his people, where God's people were reestablished through a covenant with the Lord. It was a place where the power and the presence and the glory of God was on display. John Piper refers to the glory of God as the going public of his holiness as the display of his awesome splendor, his character, his nature. It is the expression of his awesomeness. We need to know. No, we were made to know the glory of God. We must know the glory of God. We must seek the glory of God. We must crave delight in the glory of God. And when we do so, we give God glory. We were made to know him through his glory. And the more we grasp his awesome glory the more righted our vision becomes. This is what Elijah needed. This is is why Moses on the same mount said to the Lord, oh God, show me your glory. He's saying, I wanna see all of you. I wanna see all of you in your brilliant splendor. And God tells Moses, I believe in Exodus 32, you can't handle, you can't handle my glory. You've heard you can't handle the truth, you can't handle my glory. It's too much for you. It would blow your mind, literally. No one can see my face. No one can see my full glory and live. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I will pick you up, and I'll put you in the cleft of a rock, and I'll put my hand over you. And as I pass by you, on this mount, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, I will remove my hand, and you will see my back. Now, I don't know how that works, but he's saying, you'll see part of my glory. And He does. The Lord passes by Moses and his power at that moment is shown on the mountain with fire and with earthquake. His great power, great glory, Moses gets to experience a part of the glory of God. Now fast forward and we see the same parallel with Elijah. Elijah goes to Horeb because he needs his perspective shifted, he needs renewal. So look at verse nine. There Elijah came to a cave and he lodged in and behold, The word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left. They seek my life to take it away. Elijah comes to a cave on the mountain, and the Lord asked him, Elijah, what are you doing here? Which is a very deliberate question because God knows everything. Why would he ask this? Well, Elijah responds, well, God, I have put you first as the most important thing in my life. But everyone else has abandoned you completely to the point that they have killed all who have followed you. And I alone am left. Now, is that true? No. And Elijah knew that. He knew he was not the only person of God left, but Elijah's feeling so alone that he literally believes he's the only follower of the Lord left. Perception became reality. And maybe that's you. You are just in such deep despair that perception is becoming your reality. You feel, I'm alone. I got nobody and nothing. Where is God? Elijah is wallowing in self-pity, which causes this downward spiral. And in those moments, make much of God, not yourself. I mean, you look at what he says, how he responds to God. I, 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 me, me, me. It's all about self. But in those moments, don't make much of self. Make much of God. Look up. Look up to the glory of God. Seek his power. Seek his presence. Seek his glory. So why would God asks this question when he knows Elijah's predicament. He knows Elijah's heart better than Elijah knows his own heart because he wants Elijah to admit his powerlessness. He needs to realize how completely humble and dependent he needs to be. Folks, there's power in feeling powerless. There's power in feeling powerless. Powerless. God will not do much with those who are prideful, with those who try to take on life by themselves, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Those are the true isolated loners. Prideful people are essentially saying they don't need God's presence in their lives. However, admitting that you need to depend on God, that you need him to fill you with his presence makes you malleable in his hands, malleable before God. I don't know if you've ever worked with Clay The Bible talks about clay in the hands of a potter. Have you ever worked with clay? I haven't really done clay, but I've done Play-Doh. It's probably about the same. Maybe. The fact that you're laughing tells me no. Uh, You know, I played with Play-Doh like when I was a kid, and I remember making a a rock or a snake, because that's about as good as I can do, even now. And and so I'll play with my little girls. We'll play with Play-Doh. And I remember when I was a kid, my mom would say, okay, put the Play-Doh back in the canister, put the lid back on. Okay, all right, Mom. And then, of course, I wouldn't. I would forget. And the Play-Doh would be left out, and it would get all dry and crusty and gnarly. And I'd wake up in the morning, and I'd try to play with it, and it's just like a... I mean, hard as a rock. You can't do anything with clay or Play-Doh that is hardened, that is hard as a rock. Clay that hardens is good for nothing. And a hard heart is good for nothing. But a broken heart... A broken heart, God can do wonders. A broken heart is a malleable one. God delights in using broken people because there's less less self-resistance in the way. God can mold and shape. We are clay in the hands of the potter. And So part of being malleable in the hands of the potter is knowing that you are powerless. But knowing you are powerless is only half the equation. Look at verse 11. And he said, go and out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind, tore the mountains, and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. So here's this gale force, hurricane-style tornado wind just, you know, tearing the mountain apart, rocks flying, stones flying everywhere, but the Lord's presence was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. I'm thinking 8.5 on the Richter scale. I mean, it's shaking the whole mountain. It feels like the mountain is trembling and about to come down all around Elijah. But the Lord's presence was not in the earthquake. And after an earthquake, a fire. A fire, furnace, flames so hot. I mean, heat, like Elijah feels like he's in the midst of an oven as these flames encompass him. But the Lord's presence was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, Elijah, what are you doing here? And in verse 14, he says, verbatim, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek to take my life away. And so here is Elijah, and you have this great wind, but the Lord's presence was not in the wind. This great earthquake, but the Lord's presence was not in the earthquake. This great fire, but the Lord's presence was not in the fire. And then you have a Hebrew phrase that's hard to translate. So depending on your English translation, it might say, a small whisper, a still small voice. A gentle sound, literally a thin silence. I don't know what a thin silence is, but I know it's less than a thick silence. <laughs> a thin silence. It's interesting that a gentle whisper is what God used to grab Elijah's attention. The Lord's presence wasn't in all those other things, but it was in a gentle whisper. Unexpected, right? Is it though? Let me demonstrate something. If I can have a volunteer go ahead and come on up. Let me demonstrate something. As he's coming up, would you guys give our volunteer a hand? All right, here's what I want you to do. Mark, if you would stand right there where that pink tape is, okay? And I'm gonna stand over here, and what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna whisper something. I'm gonna whisper a command to you, and I want you to do that command, okay? When you hear it, and if you don't hear it, I'm gonna ask you to step forward a little bit, and then I'll have you stop and we'll do it again, okay? So I'm gonna ask the sound guys to turn off my mic. Other than him looking very confused, what was going on? Here's the point. He didn't hear anything until he got close. You can't hear a whisper from far away, a whisper is done in close proximity. And God, in his glory, was reaffirming with Elijah his near presence. Elijah had witnessed the power of God already through fire as fire fell from heaven. And then God displayed his power through through wind and earthquake and fire. Isn't it interesting, by the way, that these three forces of nature, which insurance companies refer to as acts of God, God was not in them. They did not feature his presence. So Elijah saw God's transcendence previously, that God is so far above us, so powerful, so mighty, that he is infinitely above us. But he needed to experience less of the transcendence of God, although that's important, but the imminence of God, that God is near to us. Elijah knew God's power, but at that moment, he needed God's presence. And we have all kinds of things that happen in our lives that cause us to despair and stress. And knowing God's power to handle all that is vital, it's crucial, but God's power always comes with his presence. Oh, church, isn't it good to know that God is near? Come on, isn't that good? So, seek God's presence before you seek His power. Seek His face before you seek His hand. God was showing Elijah that He is not alone. Church, Christian, listen to me, individual, you are not alone. God can accomplish anything He wants through you because the Lord is with you. You are not alone. Oh, the enemy wants you to think that you are alone. He wants you to think that you are isolated, that you are by yourself, but you are not alone. God's presence is always with you, and that, church, is good news. And so Elijah immediately recognized the Lord's presence, and he goes out to the mouth of the cave. He covers his face in his cloak, which, which showed great humility, great reverence for the glory of God and once again God asks Elijah the exact same question and Elijah gives the exact same answer. What are you doing here? Elijah responds the same way. Now was Elijah's response rehearsed? Maybe. I think so. It was, I mean, exactly the same. It's like he had gone through the excuses in his head of why he ran away so much so that it just became ingrained and this leads to the second half of the equation There's power in feeling powerless. You may be powerless, but God is not. And if you let God work through you, you will see him do great and mighty things in your life. And this is what happens with Elijah, verses 15 through 18. Elijah needed to experience the power, the presence, and the glory of God as a perspective-shifting reality to tackle his God-given assignments. The Lord sends him on a mission to anoint kings over various nations, To appoint leaders who had worked to restore order. To appoint his successor, Elisha. God was not done using Elijah yet. Only when Elijah was broken and surrendered was he ready to be used by God. And then verse 18, the Lord tells him, you're not alone, Elijah. There are actually 7,000 followers of mine who have not bowed their knee to the false god Baal, who have not kissed Baal, who refuse to worship other gods and chase after idols, a remnant of 7,000 whose hearts still belong to me. So not only is God's presence always with you, but God's people are always there for you. God will keep and sustain you his people. Look at Romans chapter 11. We're going to go back into Romans just for a moment. In Romans chapter 11, Paul actually references this whole scene. Verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed down the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would not be grace. And some of you are broken. You are broken by a rough home life. Broken because you were bullied at school, bullied at work, going through a rough marriage, going through divorce, broken hearts, broken relationships, family issues, health problems, financial stress, whatever the case may be. But rather than seeking God's presence and allowing him to use you in your humble state, you sink into self-pity and you are wallowing in this pit of despair that is spiraling down, down, down down in those moments. Remember that God in his power is magnified in our weaknesses so that he receives the glory. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says, to keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But every time he said, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong." In our weakness, God is near to us. And through his presence with us, he works in power, which brings him glory. Presence, power, glory. Or you could say it this way, God is with his people to his glory. Now, where's the Jesus moment? Here it is. The God who created the wind, the God who created the earthquake, the God who created fire dwelt among us and became a servant, dying for us to eliminate the rift that we had with our creator. And without Jesus, we would be rightly terrified of God's presence in our sin. But because of Jesus, because he became a curse for us in our place, we did not stand under a curse, but under grace. And so... Through Jesus, who is the better Elijah, the truer Moses, we have access into the presence of God at all times and in all places. We can go with bold confidence by the blood of Jesus before the throne of God. He ushers us into his presence not to be crushed by his just wrath, but to enjoy him, to abide with Jesus. We get to dine with Jesus and be with Jesus forever. How awesome is that? That is a God worth worshiping. That is a God who deserves all glory.